0: Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from the Message Trust. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing, check out our website, message.org.uk. Great. Good. How are you guys feeling? You feeling okay? I've done... I've... Sorry? You better for seeing me. Wow, Al. Top of the class. Well done. Um, good, good. Good. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting one this morning. I, um, I got a lot of things bubbling around in my brain and we've got advanced conference um, at the weekend if you're not booked in already and you want to come, please, please do join us. It's going to be a great 24 hours as we hang out together and we think about uh, the task of evangelism, what it means to, to proclaim the good news, to share this glorious hope that we have in the gospel with whomever would have ears to hear it. And uh, we'll spend some time praying together and hanging out with each other and encouraging each other and building each other up and refocusing in on on just what the gospel is and what the task is that God has called us to and all those kind of beautiful things and singing together. And uh, it's going to be a great time. So do join us if you can. And even if you can only make it for the evening social. And you feel like a bit of a cop out. You are a bit of a cop out. But even if you feel like a bit of a cop out, that you can only make the social in the evening, still come to that. Please be part of it. Um, we we are so privileged to be able to hang out together and spend time, just focusing in on the most glorious, beautiful, wonderful thing that any of us could spend our time doing. Right, which is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is literally nothing better slash more important than we could ever do with our time. Than introduce uh, somebody to the person of Jesus Christ, but because I've got lots of things bubbling around in my head um, for for the conference, uh, when I suddenly realised that I was uh, doing this this press slot this morning and and with slightly extended time. Uh, available to me to share with you guys as well. I was like, oh, I need to think about doing something. And then I had that real moment as well where I was like, oh, I'm going to be going to be talking on Friday and Saturday, and I don't want to steal anything from any of those talks that, that then you guys hear twice or anything. So I was just praying and thinking, Lord, what do you want me to share? What would you have me uh, share with the family this morning? And uh, i got to be honest, um, <laughs> I was drawing a bit of a blank. Uh, I, didn't get, I wasn't getting an awful lot. And I was like, Lord, uh, even to the point where I had some stuff planned and I had some stuff prepped. But it was kind of like half-formed. Anybody who kind of preaches in here or has the opportunity to to share at the front, we'll, we'll know that sometimes you get like the beginnings of an idea, and you're like, oh, this is good, and then you start persevering and journeying with it, and you get like a little bit further into it, and you're like, oh, no, maybe it's not as good as I thought it was, and then you start, yeah, you know Tim, right, yeah, so it's like then you start picking up another idea, and, um, and, you, and you journey with that for a little bit, and then you realize, oh, no, that's not really going anywhere either, and then you think, aha, now I've got two half-formed ideas, I'll put them together, we got one idea, hallelujah, but that never works. That never, ever, ever works. So I decided not to do that either. And uh, I found myself just mulling over lots of thoughts and lots of ideas. And there's so much rattling around my brain at the moment. I just thought, all right, Lord, unless you're really going to bring me to a place where there's something absolutely specific and linear that you want me to work through. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna noodle around a little bit in your Word, noodle over some things that I've been thinking about and mulling over, offer it out to everybody, and we'll see where we go. So hopefully that's okay. If it doesn't make sense, uh, it's absolutely uh, that's fine. Doesn't matter. Uh, but hopefully it will. So um, I was absolutely blown away really by saturday night it was an amazing night wasn't it urban hero awards yeah it's a beautiful thing it's probably i think that's the third maybe the fourth i can't remember how long i've been around for it's the third or the fourth that i've been to and it was hands down the, the best one not just because the venue looked amazing not just because the food was beautiful not just because the performances were were sensational amongst wolves and Soulbox, box ladies and gentlemen right I mean, Brightline are fine, aren't they? Brightline are fine, but Among Swords and Soul absolutely smashed it out of the parking. So good to have In Your Face back with us, and just the performances were were a beautiful thing, but honestly, it was the, the absolute conviction with which every single person that got up onto the stage and shared the hope of the gospel in some way, shape, or form, that's what blew me away. It wasn't just the fact that uh, you know, our fearless leaders would stand up and, and, and proclaim. We can expect them to do that, and, and that's fine. But it's the fact that every single person in their own style, not trying to be anybody else, but coming out of their own story, out of their own style, out of their own journey that they've been on with Christ and are still on with Christ, we're sharing something of the hope of the gospel. And, of course, Mo gets up, and you have to uh, uh, strap yourselves in and get ready to receive the gospel in a powerful way. And I'm always ready to give my life to the Lord again, multiple times after Mo's shared the gospel. That guy's dynamite. He's absolutely awesome. And um, sometimes, sometimes Mo comes to me. And he, he'll, he'll email me or, or he'll come to me to talk to me personally. And he'll start asking me questions about the gospel as part of the advanced thing. And he'll start asking me, what do you think about this? And I'm like, Mo, yeah, I'm, you need to tell me, bro. You're like the powerhouse evangelist. It's incredible what God has done in Mo's life. And it's so incredible to see such a, a powerful uh, story of transformation where Mo is, is just absolutely uncompromisingly convicted. In, and you cannot stop him. You can't stop him. It reminds me of Acts chapter 4 where the disciples uh, are brought before the Sanhedrin and and they're basically told to stop preaching the gospel. They're told to stop performing miracles and doing things and talking about the risen Christ. And they're like, hey, we can't. I'm sorry. That ain't going to happen. You can tell us not to do it. We can even try not to do it, but it ain't going to happen. Why? Because we've been so radically transformed that this stuff just spills out of who we are. So seeing all that happen, but not just that, also the business leaders, the sponsors, the people that were involved in, putting the, in helping the night to happen and handing the awards out and stuff. Everyone's standing up and actually proclaiming and saying, this is what my life is about. This is why I'm excited about partnering with the work that's going on here at The Message. And I, I was very fortunate and I would encourage you, guys, <clears throat> I'd encourage you guys to do this next year at Urban Heroes if you get the opportunity. And if you don't get the opportunity, make the opportunity. I had the opportunity to sit next to uh, a young woman who's not a believer um, yet. And she, uh, she, she came along to cover the event for the Manchester Evening News. And she was blown away by the evening. She, she was so filled with joy by what was going on. And it reminded me of last year when I was with the mess, and had the privilege of sitting next to those guys last year. And they, same, same thing, they were blown away by what they saw, by what they experienced, by the stories of transformation. And hearing stories of transformation like that, it builds faith, right? It builds faith that actually the gospel does indeed still have the power to bring salvation to all who believe, and that salvation is not a redundant "get out of jail free" clause when you die. That's not what the gospel is. We know that, right? We know that the gospel is not merely some good advice about a nice way to live or a way to escape, or as people would say, the celestial fire insurance thing—the way to escape hell when you die. The gospel is about finding your true identity. It's about understanding who you really are in light of who God really is. And actually the fact that when you discover who you are, there's some bad news that you need to get through, which is who am I? Actually, I'm someone who has rebelled and rejected against the king of life yeah? And what does that leave me with? It leaves me with death because there is no life outside of God. But when I actually choose to turn back to God and say, God, will you receive me back and realize he's already done it through the saving work of the cross, through the resurrected person of Jesus Christ, and I realize that I can have life and life in all of its fullness, everything changes for me. Not simply because I have security about my future and where I go when I die. That's just the, the cherry on top. That's just the beautiful icing on the top of the cake. No, what this gives me, is true life today. And when we look at the world and we see all of the different things that are going on, we see the, the tragedy of the, the bomb in Manchester, we see the craziness of what happened in London, very stark realities of the chaos of the world that's around us, but also more subtle things as well, not just the crazy terrorist stuff that happens in wars in Syria and other places. The subtle stuff that we see in Eden communities all around us, the subtle stuff that we see in our own families, the subtle stuff that we don't need to turn the news on to recognize is a bit off-center, is a bit wrong, is not how the world is supposed to be. When we look at those things, we realize people are living in death. Actually, there's um, some remarkable uh, stuff throughout the gospel about the reality that people do not perish when they die. People are perishing now. This is another problem that I think we have when we have a misunderstanding about what the gospel is and we think of the gospel as purely being something that will save us when we we die. It will give us our eternal life and our eternal inheritance. And that is absolutely part of the gospel. It's just not the whole story. And the problem with having that as the wholeness of The gospel is that we think, oh, people only perish when they die and they don't have the opportunity at that point to respond to God anymore, right? That's how we think of it. That's not how the Bible talks about it. The Bible talks about it as perishing now in the moment. People are dying now. Not when they die and they don't have a hope to, to respond to Christ, or whether you believe in universalism or not, we'll circle back around to that in a little bit, because I, I got an issue with that, as you might imagine I would do, and I'll explain why I have an issue with that, because even if you're a universalist, you are not expounded, you're not freed from the task of preaching the gospel. We'll get back to that. But here's the, here's the thing, right? If we, if we assume that people only. Uh, die when they, they get to the end of their life, our urgency for rescuing and pulling people into the wholeness of life disappears, and we misunderstand what the gospel actually is, which is to set people free, to allow people to do by choice what they will not do by choice in eternity, which is worship God, which is what you were created for, by the way, which is what the meaning of life is, by the way. As I travel around and go into high schools and, and talk to young people, go to universities, wherever I go, a frequent question that comes up alongside that you know, why does God let people suffer, or, or what do you? think about this, that, or the other, or occasionally hilarious. People sometimes ask me if I believe in something, which is hilarious. They'll say to me, like, do you believe... In gay marriage, you know if they want to talk about like a hot topic issue, they say "Ben do you believe in gay marriage and I often like to say no I, no no, it doesn 't exist because it 's like what's this stupid question is that do you believe yes you believe that it exists What do you mean when you say believe and we have an interesting idea now of Alan and I were having an interesting conversation about this yesterday about the difference of, of what we mean when we say that we believe in something do we mean that we, we, um, we recognize its existence or do we mean that it 's something that we agree with. And actually, I think what we have to get to with with God when we say that we believe in God is, and we believe in the gospel is not just that I believe the gospel exists, not just that I believe that God exists. When I say that I believe in God, I need to go to the next level, which is faith, which is trust, which means I don't just believe that you are there, that you exist, which can leave me the same kind of person as I was before I believed you were there. I put my whole trust in you, which transforms me into a new creation. It's a whole different story. And that's what we saw happening at Urban Hero Awards uh, the other night. We saw people moving uh, or telling their story of having been moved from a place of brokenness, darkness, rejection of life into a place of wholeness and restoration and peace and new identity. Actually, as we were uh, hanging out with each other on Saturday night, I just was looking around the room and I was reflecting upon the Great Commission, and I was thinking to myself... um, Yeah, this is cool, right? We're seeing something of the Great Commission being fulfilled here. We're seeing people being made into disciples. We're seeing people uh, uh, become. Enter into relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know what? That has an impact on people who don't yet know him. Hearing the stories, hearing the transformation, seeing the transformation. And like I say, uh, the lady that came from the MEN, she was really blown away. She was really touched by what was going on because you cannot fail to be inspired by the change that God can work in someone's life when they receive a new identity and that's what I want to talk a little bit about for a few minutes now, this idea of identity and what it actually means to be a Christian and have, have an identity in Christ. So turn with me, if you will, to that Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 16 through to 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Of the age. Now, being an evangelist, obviously the Great Commission is something that I, I, would, I would look at an awful lot. And the, the, the Great Commission passages in Matthew's Gospel are certainly, uh, historically speaking at least, and I think this is true today as well, the, the primary verses upon which we build all of our. our conviction to go with the gospel right we need to go we need to take this message but I think there's something interesting about the Great Commission that we sometimes uh, overlook or actually I think there's something about the Great Commission rather than that we overlook that we read into it that I don't think is actually there and it's this that we have made the Great Commission an absolute legal requirement of the Christian faith okay we've made the Great Commission a commandment that we are to follow and obey But actually, when I read Jesus' words here, when I look at what Jesus is saying, I'm not actually looking at this and reading it and seeing Jesus say, if you are a believer, my command to you, your legal obligation to me as a follower of Jesus is to go into the world and make disciples. And here's another reason why I don't think that that is what's going on here. Because do you not find it interesting that nowhere in all of the New Testament does anybody quote Jesus' words here? Jesus is quoted in all sorts of ways, right? Paul and Peter in particular, Paul in particular, frequently is talking about Jesus, about his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the content of his message. The gospel message that Peter and Paul proclaim, the good news of Jesus Christ, is in alignment with the message that Jesus himself proclaims. And yet nowhere in the New Testament do we find anybody making any reference to the Great Commission, which is the number one passage that we use as our conviction to go into the world do you find that interesting i find that interesting because it gets me looking at it in a different way and thinking hang on a second if the disciples themselves didn't see the great commission necessarily as being an absolute legal requirement this is what you do if you are a christian by law given to you of god this is your root command actually what does god say that what does jesus say the root command is this is the root command is, is love right that we love god Above all else, with everything that we've got and that we love each other. That's the command that Jesus gives us. This commission that we receive here at the end of Matthew 28, I think is doing something else. And you know what I think it's doing? I think it's doing this. I think Jesus is saying, you now have the authority, and guess what? It's going to happen. Why? Because when you encounter me, you will not be the same. My authority will come upon you, and this will be the most natural outworking of your life. This will happen. This is a promise actually from Jesus this is a promise that those who are in me those who remain in me those who receive my transforming power you now have the authority and here's a promise for you when your heart is transformed you'll go into the world and you won't be able to stop talking about me just like Mo Timbo you won't be able to stop why because you're living in a new reality in fact you're living in the reality that you were created for that changes absolutely everything why is this important Why is this an important distinction to make? Because I think when we start recognizing that evangelism is not a legal obligation, it is in fact your identity, it changes the way that we live our lives. When you live your life thinking that evangelism is a duty, it is something that you have to do as a Christian. It is something that, oh, I've become a Christian. Okay, can I get my checklist of things that I now am required to I'm required to go to church. Okay, I'm required to sing songs. I'm required to read my Bible. I'm required to do this. I'm required to. It's like, hang on a second. Are we not saved by God to be freed from legalism? Are we not saved from God to be freed from a requirement of the law that is insufficient to do the job of reconciling us to God in the first place? Why are we enslaving ourselves with more legalism? When we can actually step into the reality that when we are saved, you know what we get? A new identity. What is that identity? Children of God carriers of shalom, ambassadors of peace and hope and truth and love that would go into the world, not simply because Jesus tells us to, although he is f- well within his rights to tell us to, and if he tells you to do something, you flip flipping well do it, because that's what you're supposed to do. But I don't think that Jesus here is saying, here's my command, go into the world and preach the gospel. I think Jesus is saying, you are going to be transformed in such a way that the outworking of your life will be nothing less than complete radiation of my light and my love, and it will change the world. This is how I would think about it. If evangelism is a legal requirement of God for us, if you do not evangelize, you are, a, you are being sinful. Okay? Think about it like that. If evangelism is a legal requirement, if this is a commandment from Jesus himself to go and evangelize, if you do not evangelize, you are being sinful. I, I'm not going to go that far. I don't believe that that's true. I think, it's, I think in many ways it's worse than that. Because here's the thing, sin can be corrected. I I can sin and I can, uh, uh, with with a genuine conscience of conviction, I can come before God and I can say, hey God, I messed up, thank you for your saving power, please forgive me, please receive me. God removes my sin from me as far as the east is from the west. It keeps no record of right and wrong. It is done, it is dealt with, it is finished, I can move forward, right? Okay, here's why evangelizing and, not, and failing to evangelize is worse than, than if it was a sinful act not to do it. Because actually, when we fail to evangelize, we fail to live the life that Jesus has for us. It's as simple as that. And there is no greater tragedy for any human being than failing to live the life that God created for you you for. That's why, just get your head around that for a second. That's why it is worse, think, I really believe this, I really mean it, okay. It is worse for for it is, yeah, it is worse that evangelism would be um, not sinful, that actually it would be a deficient life. It is worse because there is forgiveness of sins and we can reconcile and we can put it right. Every moment that you waste not living the life that God has for you, you can never get back. It's gone. It's gone. And God says, why are you wasted another moment? Why are you wasting another moment? There there is glorious purpose. There is glorious hope. There is glorious freedom for you. If you will step into the purposes that I have for you, the life, it's not a sinful life. It's a tragically, tragically unfulfilled one. So why do we struggle so much then? If we want to live life to the full, if we want to get busy with the task of evangelism, why do we sometimes struggle to actually keep the gospel as an absolute Priority, And I think it's as simple as this because the gospel is incredibly inconvenient. Incredibly inconvenient. It's inconvenient in two ways. The primary way that the gospel is inconvenient is this. It tells you and reminds you that you are not God. That's the first way that it's inconvenient because we want to be God. That's the whole problem of sin in the first place. We want to be God. We think we know how to do things better than he does. We want to go our own way instead of going his way. So we rebel. We reject. God, I'm a better God than you. God, I don't need you on the throne of my life. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. What? I'm not God? Oh, hang on. And we look around the world and, you know, we see problem after problem after problem. We see trial after trial after trial, difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. And I guarantee you at the root of every single one is a fundamental problem. We want to be God's. But there's only one God. Fortunately for us, he's gracious and kind and loving. And he draws us back to himself and says, even though that you've got a little bit above your station, and even though you're deserving of a punishment beyond anything that you could imagine for that rebellion and rejection, I only got good stuff for you if you'll turn to me and if you'll accept my truth and my hope and my transformation. But God is in the business of inconveniencing people. He does that all the time because an uh, an inconvenience life to God is a useful life right? And, that, and we, 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 we see it as inconvenience. God's, God sees it as purposeful. God sees it as useful. God sees it as, as life and life in all of its fullness. We can go all the way through the Bible. We look at Abraham, right? Abraham, finally, right? He gets the son that he's always wanted. And he's like, yeah, I got a son. This is awesome. We can play catch together. We can have fun. Woo, happy days. And what does God say? Hey, Abraham, I'm going to inconvenience you a little bit today. Just so you know, I'd like you to walk up a mountain. I'd like you to kill your son. What? That's a little bit inconvenient, But Abraham gets busy in the task, and God reveals himself to be a God who provides. Great, beautiful story that comes out. The story's not about Abraham's faithfulness. The story is about God's provision, because we must never lose sight of the fact that this book, actually, hey, guess what? Here's another way that we like to make ourselves God. This isn't about us. It's about him. But when we read this and we read about him, guess who we find out about? Ourselves because we're made in his image and we are his dearly loved children. But we've got to keep that in mind. This book is not about us. It's about him. Every story about the Bible, Abraham, Moses, whoever else, they are not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story in every single story, in every single circumstance. God is the hero of the story. Uh, God to people. Moses, Moses, he has an interesting upbringing. He finds himself ultimately living quite a nice peaceful life after killing someone down in Egypt and escaping. And he has a long, long period of time out of Egypt. And he's doing all right. He's happy no real cares in the world everything's going okay and then one day you know some hedgery goes on fire and God appears to him in the hedgery and he's like hey Moses guess what you know that place that you ran away from because you murdered somebody and uh, and it all got a bit dark and a bit crazy and a bit scary you're gonna go back there Moses is like oh that sounds a bit inconvenient and God says oh and by the way you know you've got a speech impediment you know you're not very good at speaking well you're gonna put that speech impediment and that voice to good use. You're actually going to go and you're going to stand in front of Pharaoh and you're going to tell Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, guess what? All these slaves that are building all these nice things for you, basically your whole economy thrives upon, you're going to let them go. Yeah, you're going to do it. And Moses is like, ah, I do really think I want to do that. Thanks very much, God. And God's like, no, you're going to do it. And Moses is like, it's a bit inconvenient. And God's like, yeah, but it's useful to me. So Moses heads down to Egypt. And what does Moses say when he becomes, stands before Pharaoh? He says something very important. He says to Pharaoh, he says, God is saying to you, let my people go. Right? We know that bit. But sometimes we forget what comes next. And this is important. This is really important. Moses says, let my people go go. Why? Because they don't like being in slavery. Why? Because uh, actually we've got a nice uh, holiday that we'd like to take them on. Why? Because uh, actually uh, God, God misses them a little bit and, and, and he just would like them to be a little bit closer to the promised land that he's got. No no, 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 the primary reason is this, let my people go so that they may worship me. Because worship is ultimately what we're trying to achieve through mission. Worship is both the the fuel for our mission, as we worship God it sends us into the mission field, it is uh, an outworking of mission in that as we are missional, we are worshiping God more effectively than any other time in our life. And it is also the fruit of mission that we would see people who do not currently worship God worship him. Going back to the school thing, the common question that I get asked when I'm in school alongside those challenging questions is, is this been okay if you're so clever, what's the meaning of life? I don't know, I'm not that clever, but I'm, I mean, I'm quite clever, but I'm not that clever, right? And people say, well, what's the meaning of life? I say, simple to worship God. That's it, to worship God. But if you're, rebellion, if you're in rebellion and rejection of God, you can never worship him, which is why the end game of mission is actually to go and create worshippers to help people understand what they're created for, what life is all about in the first place. So Moses heads down, he's inconvenienced, but God will not let inconvenience get in the way of the primary purpose that he has for us, that we would worship him and create worshippers of him in his power, right? God's not going to let inconvenience get in the way of that. It's far, far more important to, to him th- than anything like that. Um, Esther, lovely Esther, right? She finds herself in a situation where, uh, I mean... Historically speaking, it's not. We can kind of look at the story of Esther with slightly rose-tinted glasses. Essentially, Esther is a sex slave. We can't really get around that fact. She's pulled out of her community and given, given to the king as a, as a wife. Um, and it's, but that, that was the culture at the time. That's the reality of how things went on. The fact of the matter is, although she was not there of her own choosing, once she arrived into that palace court and essentially became the king's favorite, her life was pretty flipping sweet at that point. Like, he, like you, you are, you've, you've hit the jackpot in many ways okay in many ways you've hit the jackpot when that happens and and so her life is settled into some semblance of of comfort and goodness but there is a plot against God's own people against the Jews and so God loving his people is not going to let a little bit of inconvenience get in the way of his purposes and his plans right so what does God do God says to Esther he says hey Esther this is what you need to do you need to go you need to talk to the king and you need to tell the king about this plot And it's just like, oh, that's a little bit inconvenient because then if you know this, God, you might not know, but permanently stationed by the king's side at all times are two guards. And if anybody enters into the presence of the king without being invited and attempts to speak to him, attempts to get get an audience with him, those guys have one job. They only have one job. Imagine this is your job. They have one job, right? And this this is the job. If the king looks at them like this, this that's all he needs to do. If he looks at them like that, right they pick up the sword and they cut your head off that's all he has to do just look like he might have a little spasm in his neck and do that and they'll think oh you want me to cut the head like you don't want to get it wrong but this is what they do all day long well not all day long they're not literally just lopping people's heads off right I mean in theory if people were coming in there all day long then I guess they'd be lopping their heads off but nobody's going to go in there and try and have an audience with the king why because they're going to get their head cut off she's like oh god this is a bit inconvenient Not sure if I wanted, and and God's like, I'm not going to let inconvenience get in the way of my people being wiped out. Come on, Esther, I've got purpose for you. And Esther steps up for such a time as that was. Move to the New Testament. Um, uh, Mary, Mary, teenage girl, unmarried. Angel of the Lord appears before her and says, hey, Mary, guess what? And Mary's like, are you for real? And what's Mary's reaction, actually? It's beautiful, isn't it, Mary's reaction here in the news. And we often only, and this is a little thing, a little bugbear in mind, we often only preach this passage at Christmas. We preach this passage all the time because it's awesome. It's one of the most important, powerful passages of obedience and fulfillment of glorious purpose that we have in all of Scripture. Mary's response to what the angel tells her about the fact that she will give birth to the Messiah of the world, ladies and gentlemen, God himself, is to sing a song of worship. Ah, oh, we're starting to see that connection of worship We're starting to see that connection of worship and purpose and evangelism all come together. It's inconvenient, though. A teenage girl, unmarried, pregnant, that's inconvenient. And guess who else it's inconvenient for? Joseph. Joseph's like, what? Say what? My lady wife that I was going to marry, she's now she's got a baby in there? Oh, it's inconvenient. This is going to change everything for me. But does Joseph freak out a little bit? Yeah, a little bit, I suspect. But But does he let it stop him from actually going, okay, God, I'll be obedient. I'll follow. I'll step in. No. One of the things that all of these people have in common is they're all exclusively human, right? Just like us. There's someone else who is inconvenienced in the Bible, who shares with us our humanity, but also has something that we don't have, which is perfect divinity as well. His name is Jesus, and he's inconvenienced more than anybody else, isn't he? Because let's just get our minds around this for a second. Jesus is in glory, heaven, with the Father, where he has been for all eternity, where he was present at the creation of all things, right? Where he wears a crown of glory upon his head. And the Father, we suppose, turns to Jesus and says, son, I have a task for you. And the son looks at the father and he takes off his crown of glory and he steps into a world of muck and mire and he replaces it with a crown of thorns. And he is inconvenienced beyond measure, beyond anything that any of us could ever possibly comprehend. Inconvenienced on a cosmological scale. Inconvenienced in a way that none of us will ever fully, fully, truly understand and yet we have enough understanding of it that we recognize the significance of what christ has done in being obedient to what his father has asked him to do but this is the point that i want to make every person in the in in the the narratives that i've shared with you briefly is someone who has heard the call of god and god has spoken to them and said this is what i need you to do and they have stepped out in faith to do it jesus is a little bit different to everybody else And Jesus is our model, actually. Moses is not my model. I can be inspired by him. Abraham's not my model. Esther, Mary. These are inspirational people of faith that can build our faith as we look at that. They're not my model. My model is exclusively the person of Jesus Christ. God and man in one. And why is that an important distinction? Because everybody else was asked to do something by God and inconvenienced, and they needed to step out in in obedience to do what he wanted them to do. All of us can experience those things in our life. God will ask you to do things that will inconvenience you. God will ask you to step into mission, to step into conversation, to move house, to give up your finances, to do whatever else, and those things will inconvenience you. And those things, day by day, are to be discerned, to be thought through, to be prayed into, and then to be stepped into. But the gospel itself, the task of evangelism, does not fall under that category. It doesn't. The gospel is its own thing entirely. The gospel is to be viewed in the same way that Jesus viewed his task. Not as a human being being obedient to what the Father has said, although there is an element of that that is always present. But actually, why does Jesus do what he does? Because Jesus is love itself. Jesus is love itself. Itself. So when Jesus responds to the Father saying, Yes, Father, I will go and I will do what you have asked me to do, he's not simply doing it out of obedience, even though there's an element of obedience involved. He is actually doing it out of a response of who he is. When I share the gospel, when I Proclaim the good news interpersonally from a stage through how I live my life through the words that I speak. You know why I do it? Because I want to be obedient to the life that God has called me to. But actually, the greatest commission that we have for sharing the gospel, I don't think, is primarily about a commandment that I need to be obedient to. Is about Jesus saying, "Who are you?" That's what it's about. This is Jesus looking at his people and he's saying, "This is a very important question: Who are you?" Because if you're my follower. The world's never gonna look the same again, not for you or anybody else. This is about Jesus saying to Mo Timbo, Hey Mo, who are you? You're not a Muslim. You're not a gangster on the streets of London. You're not a criminal. You're not a prisoner. You know who you are? You're a child of God, redeemed, restored, saved. And oh, Mo, life is gonna get inconvenient for you. Like There's going to be challenges for you. There's going to be times when I'm going to ask you to do things that are going to be challenging, that are going to push you beyond your comfort zone. But you know what, Mo? Here's the thing. The gospel is not actually one of those things. The gospel sits above all of those things as the totality of your life, as the totality of who you are. And here is my commission to you. It's not a commandment. It's not a legal obligation. It is a commission. If you accept my transforming love, let it follow its natural Course, right? The most natural outworking of the Christian life is that we can't shut up about the centerpiece of our faith, Jesus Christ Himself. My friends, I I don't desire to um, make any of you feel guilty in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I actually think that's one of the things that the legal obligation does. Um, we, we can end up feeling guilty about not sharing the gospel. God does not want you to feel guilty about sharing the gospel. If you have conviction, if you feel this tug, oh, why am I not sharing the gospel? Why? I, I pray that it is not because you feel like this is something that I have to do. I pray it's because you're wrestling against your very nature. You have a sinful nature that God has restored and redeemed, and you're constantly wrestling against that into the trueness of who you really are, which is somebody that cannot shut up about how glorious and wonderful and awesome and amazing and powerful and gracious and freedom-bringing God is. That's why you feel the twinge, because you exist to worship. And the greatest way that you can worship God is to live a life that accepts his gospel and lets it transform you and follows it to its natural conclusion. And its natural conclusion is that we cannot stay silent about who he is. I hear people talking all the time these days, sadly. I've had it multiple times in the f- past few weeks alone where people say, hey, Ben, you know what? I'm, I just think that we should just love people. I'm like, well, you know, I'm down with the love thing. That's cool. Well, will you explain to me what you mean? I'm not really into the... Oh, I know you're evangelist. I know you preach. I'm not really into the articulation, the, the talking about God thing. I, I think we should just... I think we should just love people, right? And I'm, and I'm like, well, I, hang on, explain to me what you mean. And they, and they say, well, you know, I think we should just go out and we should show God's kindness and God's goodness and, 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 and God's, you know, niceness, essentially, right, which is a fallacy. God is not nice. God is good, right? There's a difference, big difference, right? Okay, sometimes God is very unnice because he inconveniences you. That's not very nice, but his purposes are better. His ways are bigger. God is always good and he's trustworthy. That's more important. Here's the thing, though, and I say to people, I say, okay, that's, that's fine, but what distinguishes you from anybody else? What, what makes what you do Christian? Oh, I'm representing God, but every human being is made in the image of God, so people can represent God even without knowing it. How do people know the reason for the hope that you have? As it says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. In Christ, right? How do people know? Because here's the problem actions are ambiguous. You can read whatever you want into actions. I can do something nice for you, and you can come up with a thousand different reasons why, but there's only one reason that matters. There's only one reason that matters because I am desperate for you to throw off the shackles of slavery and brokenness and darkness and step into life and love and freedom. And we must enunciate, we must articulate. We must. But not because we're commanded to. Because it's who we are. It's our identity. It's who we are. We're we're into the uh, the worship thing these days, and I'll finish with this thought. Really, um, we're into the worship thing these days, and uh, what I what I mean by that is we we like to have a good old sing song to some some good you know, contemporary worship songs or even some hymns or whatever. And that's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. We want to express our praise to God. And, and songs are a good way to do that. But if you really, really, really want to worship God, you need to understand who you are. You need to understand your identity. Your identity is that you're a child of God. You're redeemed. You're saved. You're restored by Jesus Christ. And if you really, really, really want to worship God, and you need to start sharing the hope that you have with the world. Because actually, here's the thing. When we get to heaven, we will glorify God eternally. We will essentially sing. I don't think it will quite look like this, but we will sing songs to God. We'll praise him. We'll worship him eternally. One thing we can't do when we get to heaven, share the hope of Jesus. Too late. Universalists, people that believe that at some point God will actually just save everybody. God will give everybody a second chance. I do not believe that. I don't believe that's a sound biblical doctrine. We can have a conversation about that if you'd like to have a conversation about it. But here's the thing even if you're a universalist, even if you believe, actually, ultimately, God will give everybody a chance, because he's kind, right? He's nice. So God will give everybody a chance to step into heaven. I would like to ask you this. Are you 100% certain? Are you 100% certain? Because if there's even a 0.00000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000 percent chance that you're wrong, then the totality of your life should be about seeing the lost get saved. Because if there's even that tiny, 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 tiny possibility that people's salvation hinges on us sharing the hope that they would receive that eternal salvation, then we should do it. But there's an even more important reason than that. Because if you think that the totality of the reason for salvation is what happens to you after you die, you have missed the point. God has life for you today. God wants you to worship him today in spirit and truth, just as he says to the Samaritan woman. The word that he, Greek word that he uses, is proskuneo, which means complete submission, on my knees before God, saying, God, whatever you would have me do, I trust you, I believe in you, I have hope in you, fulfill me, sustain me, restore me, take me into this life to be the person that you created me to be. This is my identity. Yes, I will sing the songs, but if in singing the songs I am not compelled into the world to share the good news of Jesus Christ... Quite frankly, and I will put it as starkly as this: that don't mean jack. Right? The life that you bring into this room to worship God matters, and the life that you carry out of this room matters. If you bring a life that does is not living in the full identity of who Christ has made you to be, and you try and sing these songs, God says the words are true, but the heart in, they mean nothing. And if after we sing these words and say, God, there's no one greater than you. Thank you for your salvation. You're amazing. You're powerful. You're wonderful. And then we walk out of this room and we're like, right, now where shall I go for dinner? What? How is it possible that we can sing words of hope and salvation and glory about that God has saved us? God has the best life. God, you are amazing. God, you are wonderful. And yet we can leave this room and not tell anybody about him. We haven't worshipped. You haven't. I don't know what you've been doing, but you haven't been worshipping. When you worship God, you dwell in the trueness of your identity. That you're a child of God, created for worship, and what's the natural outworking linear line? That you'll tell people about Him. So no guilt trip in here. Simply a self-reflection question for us this morning. Have you understood your identity? Because God has glorious purpose for you. Sometimes it will be inconvenient, and it'll inconvenience you. But the gospel, in and of itself, is not something that we do. It is something that we are. And thank God for that. Right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your glorious good news. We recognize the challenges that face us in this life, and we, we recognize that it can get uncomfortable sharing. Sometimes we don't know how to do it. Sometimes we, um, we think that method is the most important thing, and because we don't have the method, we oh, I'm not sure if I can share with other people and all that kind of thing. And Lord, help us to just reconnect with the reality that, that it, it is our identity to be children of the gospel. It is our identity to be people that cannot stop talking about your goodness, your love, just like Mo, just like Nick and Andrea, just like Cyril and Laura and the other guys. who've such incredible transformation in their lives. But God, you don't need necessarily a story of being at rock bottom in terms of drugs or anything else. Every single one of us has eternal, abundant need for your grace and your goodness. Help us to see that when we turn back to you and look at you, We can know life and life in all of its fullness, but that life revolves around an identity of gospel. Help us to live. Empower us to live as we know you will. Help us to see your commission as something that we absolutely should be engaged with, but as an authority-giving moment, not as something that you hold us accountable to legalistically that we can feel guilty about, but as something that you say, this is going to happen You get to be involved. I've given you authority. Now get busy because there is no other hope for the world than the church of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to bring peace to the chaos, to bring hope in the darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support or even get involved with one of our teams.